Welcome to Security All In. This is Sam Curry. On the Security All In podcast, we like to interview people and try to understand a little bit of the personal side of how they came to be in security, how they individually both were found or found the space, and what their approaches are, their methodology, how they see security, and how they see risk management. And of course, the name itself is uh, a reference to playing poker and this notion of putting all of your stakes in at some point and really having a career here. So I'm very pleased today to be joined by my good friend, Roland Cloutier. Roland is a staff vice president and global chief security officer for ADP. Roland, thanks for joining. Sam, glad to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so am I. Uh, we were comparing notes just a little while ago and realized it's been nearly a decade since we worked together, and that blew my <laughs> mind. It's been a long time. It's amazing how fast uh, when we're in this industry and we do what we do for a living in, in an operations-like role, how the years just continue to go by. Yeah. It, uh, I think it was five years ago I came to your annual security conference to speak, and uh, it just it is just rolling by. By the way, nine years at one place is a pretty amazing thing for security and for our industry. To what do you attribute being there so long? Uh, what's the magic formula? Yeah, you know, Sam, I'm not sure if it's a magic formula or it's just a continuing passion and the opportunities I get here. When I hear that, you know, security executives, you know, their average time and tenure is 2.5 or three years. And, you know, often, you know, I feel like that is because either they've come to do what they do or that they have lost interest in the opportunity, i.e. they've fixed something and they've moved on. Hmm. You know, at ADP, I've never gotten that sense because it's such a broad span of responsibilities as a converged security executive. You know, I span cyber defensive operation, operational risk. I span, you know, business continuity and, and crisis management and financial crimes and public safety. So I have a, a pretty broad, you know, portfolio that I'm responsible. And because of the success of the organization and of the people who help lead this program for me, we're constantly engaged by the business to go solve hard problems for them. And whether it's in the go-to-market on products or whether it's you know a, a net new operational issue that they want to solve or how to work in a certain geo, there seems to be plenty of problems to solve in a large global multinational. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you even use the term converged security and that you are so well aligned with the business. I love that you the way you put it was solving problems for the business. I, I still feel like most CISOs are not well aligned with the business. Is that something you walked in and ADP had that maturity or was it something you built with a new set of partners? Because where we worked previously was a very different model. Um, what was it like coming into it and how did you get to where you are now within ADP? Well, when I started, I had two direct reports. So that was about it. <laughs> and no one below them. So yeah, it was a net new program. Well, how, how big is it now? How, how many people now? Or if you can say. Well, I have roughly um, 300 FTE in about 13 different security disciplines around the globe, plus partners delivering services on our behalf. So it's quite different. Hmm. And that just goes, you know, in this organization and, you know, what we do, the sensitivity around the protection of those assets and those funds um, has, you know, drove almost a decade ago to a new focus around creating this 
centralized security capability and saying, you know what, doesn't matter what division you're in, it doesn't matter what business unit you're in, we're going to have a minimum level of security. And in order to do that, they knew they needed to create a centralized global security capability. But, you know, I'd like to get back to your previous comment, Sam, because, you know, we don't even necessarily think of it as, quote unquote, the security group. Hmm. What we call it at ADP is business operations protection, because that's what we do, right? We do, you know, protection and security and all of these things. But at the end of the day, we create technology, deliver amazing services, and we sell it to clients. (laughs) And so my job is to make sure we can continue to do that in the context of what I do as a profession. So we call it business operations protection. And when you start to train people to think that way, that's how they deliver. I love the, you know, one of my jobs, uh, quite famously, since we last worked together, I really felt the security is Dr. No, right? The the business obstruction group, if anything. I love the idea of, of renaming it. Uh, was that something that you came up early in the, the time at ADP, or did it take a while to come around to it? And did you have any allies on the way? Were there some that made it especially helpful to try and do that? Yeah, you know, I have a lot of allies. You know, I'm fortunate in this job where I have – I'm in a senior enough position, segregated outside of a technology organization at a business level, and where I have direct access, you know, to our CEO, our CFO, mm-hmm. our general counsel, you know, people that really understand this space and want to see a change. But when it comes to, you know, how did you get to that, you know, that thought process, it really happened about year three when I was here and, you know, I had been busy building out a technology infrastructure and strategy worldwide and driving net new technologies into the operations. And of course that drives transparency, transparency drives discovery of issues that you have to go resolve. And then about year three, I was getting a little wrapped up around the axles and I sat down with a gentleman, a brilliant individual was the corporate controller at the time. His job was managing the multi-trillions of dollars that pass through ADP every year. And he pulled me aside and said, you know, Roland, you're doing a fantastic job, but I got to tell you, you're missing the concept of what we do. And it's not because of, you know, how you think or anything else. It's because of how busy you are. You need to step back Think about what you're trying to accomplish beyond protecting this company and solving problems and figure out how you're going to lead as an executive in the company solving business problems. And that really made me think. And uh, Alan Shinus was his name. He since retired up to a big old farm in New England. But, you know, that moment will stick around with me for the rest of my career. That is some of the best advice I've ever heard, right? It's the that's remarkable. I just think in my own life, right, it's so hard to find the time to focus on the things that matter when there's so many things in the long tail of, of stuff to catch up with. So you said you had two direct reports. Did it then become a priority to get more folks to handle things operationally to free you up? Or did you take a different approach to your daily task list? Was this a Roland changes or Roland changes his org or more? Or How did you tackle that advice? It was really Greenfield at the time, Sam. There was, you know, when my first order of business, believe it or not, was not to hire another security practitioner. Mm. Believe it or not, my first hire was a portfolio program manager that I needed to run my business office because I knew I was going to be scaling. I knew I was going to be opening up tens, if not hundreds of projects. 
And I knew the first thing I needed Mm -hmm. was somebody that was going to drive a professional program management team capable of running as fast as we were going to run. So that was number one. The second thing I did was pull together an outside third-party strategy consulting team to give a view into what we were going to call our one- to three-year window Mm -hmm. and our 12-month window. And so as I was out meeting the business, understanding the issues, I was reporting that back to the team that was on site. I also hired my chief architect, individual you and I both have worked with in the past. And uh, his job was to come on and start doing low-hanging fruit. What don't we have? What do we need? What's going to give us the biggest bang for our buck in transparency? And so this all converged within, call it the first six to eight months, where we finished our strategy, was able to take it to the board, get the funding necessary through the executive committee. And at that time, go ahead and really started just running fast, building the team, deploying kit and technology around the globe and starting to solve real hard business problems that they were facing. Now, you and I both remember the abortive acronym ROSI, right? Return on Security Investment. And the whole, you know, risk is really the language of dialogue with the business. My question for you is, how did you find a way of showing the business value of what you were doing? Because you had this great advice. You started to build out the team to think in terms of maintaining operations and being able to do multiple things, getting the architecture right. What did you use as a language and with which stakeholders? Was it risk-based? Was it a return on investment? Was it something else? Yeah, risk is a huge part of our organization. Matter of fact, we're a risk-based decision-making organization. Mm. We're, you know, from, if you think of the tip of the spear, we're intelligence-led, risk-based. That's how we describe ourselves. So risk was an important part of our program from the beginning, getting factual information, you know, from the ground, from the troops, from the field, being able to bring that back and do detailed analytics against it. So we built a capability with a GRC platform. What's funny is we have a saying around here. We actually had T-shirts made that says, if it's not in GRC, it doesn't exist. So, you know, we, it, it was one of the largest deployments ever of this technology, still is to date, outside the U.S. government. And we use it for workflow, for risk analysis, uh, for risk documentation, risk process assurance. So risk was a fundamental component. But that doesn't get you to your measure. Just because you're looking and recording issues or incidents or risk problems, it doesn't mean you actually get some sort of analysis. So we settled on a a standard or taxonomy, however you want to look, it's called FAIR, which really stands for Factor Analysis for Information Risk. And it, it gives us a mechanism to look at our business within our industry against certain risk factors and certain cost factors and come up with a risk impact analysis and a derivative risk capability. So I have a problem. If I do X, Y, or Z, I run a Monte Carlo against that, and it gives me the probability and outcome you know, based on those remediation strategies. And so that's what we've used for a foundation of risk for several years now, Mm -hmm. um, almost out of the gate once we had a GRC to be able to do this. And we've made some modifications and we've done some really interesting things. So, I mean, I think that was step one for us to get to that. But you started this conversation with return on investment. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
for people to stand up and say, you know, it's a risk-based thing, it's cost avoidance, it's not, you know, necessarily, you know, return on investment. I disagree. You know, I can think of two areas today that, you know, we prove it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Look at our financial crimes and, you know, fraud technology defense program. You know, <laughs> we stopped tens of millions of dollars of fraud every year. It's it's something crazy, like a 98% effectiveness rate on our end financial defense process. Wow. That's huge. Right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> and I spend very little dollars to do that. Yeah. We're talking a handful of headcount. But there's always the problem when you do that. If, as you get more effective at stopping fraud in particular, the fraudsters move elsewhere. And so it's hard to measure the not just what you actually stop, but what didn't bother, given that you're better at it, right? So it can't just be pure how much did we avoid because it doesn't capture the whole – it captures a return investment, but not necessarily the whole thing. And if, I guess if it's big enough, that's good enough? Well, let's take the ADP marketplace and our go-to-market capabilities around our platform that delivers uh, third parties to construct applications against our, you know, our legacy and next-generation platforms. Right? So this is a marketplace where people go build apps to be able to use the depth and breadth of ADP's information and platforms that we've created over 60 years. Right? Mm-hmm. It's incredibly powerful, and it's a huge API integration that has just allowed for a whole new market to be created around the human capital management space. You can't do that without an investment in security. If you think about an API defensive architecture, if you think about the security testing and analysis that has to go on with the code that is being bounced up against in that marketplace and doing the app testing, right? Those resources enable an entire new market capability that we didn't have three years ago. That now, because we've invested just this much in security, allowed extraneous access to our core platforms and provide testing and verification of those applications, we have this new mega portfolio that is becoming a huge part of the next generation of ADP. Would you and then would your colleagues say that doing this function, I think you called it business operations protection, or what we usually call security, would you say that that's a competitive differentiator for ADP? Does that give you an advantage in the market against those you might consider your competition? I apologize, I don't know who you do consider a competition, but do you see it that way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're going up and, and you come in as a, as a customer and want to have a transparent review of our SOC 2s or our security platform or our cyber defensive operations centers, or you want to understand you know, the, the capabilities around real-time response, and you come in and you sit in our environment, speak to our practitioners, watch it on a screen, it's like the difference from going to your local colo to an AT&T you know, uh, security operations group. We provide that level of competitive capabilities in the marketplace around the protection of the most sensitive things that our clients worry about, their human capital management information and their funds. Let's shift gears a little bit. Roland, um, I'm interested in, of course, I knew you before you went to ADP, but I'm interested in going back before I knew you. Maybe you could share either how security found you or you found security? When did the younger Roland decide this is it or did you? Did that ever happen at some point? Well, you know, I've I've been in security and law enforcement for going on in 30 years. So it's always been part of my life. Hmm. 
you know, I knew at five years old what I wanted to do, at least from a law enforcement perspective. So I followed that dream and went into the Air Force, uh, became a combat security uh, specialist and later an ATS specialist, anti-terror specialist. And, you know, my focus was in aerospace defense for, for a bunch of years. And then uh, I, I fell in love, wanted to move back to my home state of New Hampshire. And, you know, and so, you know, I moved back there and actually became a, a police officer with the U.S. Uh, Department of Veterans Affairs and in um, their criminal investigations group work, uh, narcotics and fraud crimes and things of that nature. Worked a canine for a few years. Did you have a, a dog as a canine officer? I, I did. It was a can- best job ever, man. Aww. Best job ever. I was a canine handler for several years, uh, drug dog and patrol dog. Uh, I got assigned to the 96 Olympics, you know, working with the State Department, uh, managing canine teams from all over the world. Um, just a fantastic career, you know. You go from doing nine countries in three years with the Department of Defense to uh, being a canine handler and being assigned to task force for different law enforcement agencies. I have to go to that tangent just a little further. Have you always been a dog person and are you still now? Yeah, yeah. But my dogs have gotten smaller as I've gotten older. I, don't, I, don't understand. <laughs> I have Yorkshire Terriers, so I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> I've got Jack Russell Terriers that like to, to go out and kill little things, but uh, they're, they're great dogs. I mean, I've always been a dog person. And, you know, if, if I got whacked tomorrow and could do anything I wanted, you know, my thought is, hey, maybe there's a canine handler open somewhere. It's, it is the greatest job. But all the good things must end. And, mm-hmm. you know, and in the course of when I was working for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, we were doing a lot of a lot of fraud crimes. And whether it was pharmaceutical diversion or it was OWCP or general drug crimes, you know, what started happening in the mid-90s is that. Every case, and I mean every case, Sam, had something to do with technology, mm-hmm. whether someone had manipulated a database or they had stolen something and we needed uh, you know, to prove matched records and we were exporting information and the technology bug kind of bit me. Yeah. And I went to visit a friend of mine who's a professor at, uh, at BU up in Boston, and I was talking to him about it. He said, you know, this is going to be a big area. You should really think about it. And I did. I went back to school to BU for a couple of years in computer sciences. And um, when I left, you know, interesting enough, my thought was I was going to leave, go get some practical experience and go back to the FBI because they were just starting up these CART teams, they called them at the time, or these, you know, computer computer response teams. I remember that. And so I dipped my toe into that market. I remember graduated on a Thursday, Sunday night, I got the Boston Globe. I applied for four jobs. I faxed it in. Remember those oh, days? Yeah, I faxed it in. <laughs> and by the way, it's perfectly and, logical you think you would go back to the government. So you, you send these four faxes off. What happened? Long story short, Monday I got called back by three of them. By Thursday I had interviewed with all of them, and I had an offer doubling my pay wow. as, a, as you know, a uh, uh, coming out of the government. And it was hard to say no. And so I did it and I uh, had the experience of my life. You know, um, I remember day one walking, you know, on Friday turned in, you know, badge and gun. Monday, I walk into Cube Farm and, you know. <laughs> culture shock. <laughs> culture shock. You're like, no you know, dog, I'm no looking gun, to, and now desks, yeah. And the tie was choking. And it was just absolutely amazing. What a 
what a transition. But I learned so much. And, you know, I, I built security teams, information security teams, focused on critical infrastructure for a few years, uh, built my, working for EDS, mm-hmm. built my, uh, left EDS, built my own company, um, sold that to another company as a, you know, a, a critical infrastructure consulting organization. A couple of years after that, that got acquired and started building uh, with another company, a new set of directors, uh, a new program. And, and right about that time, EMC had come to me, who I had to help define their strategy for security going for the next few years, said, why don't you put your money where your mouth is and you know, come work for us. And I took the opportunity to be their first chief security officer for EMC. And that was a great ride for six years. We did 63 acquisitions. Oh, yeah. In you know, a matter of six years, it was crazy. But you know, again, the world was changing, technology was changing, security was becoming the forefront of all of this, and I got to help build it, meet some of the greatest practitioners in the field developing new tech. That you know, we and you and I in that boat were just uh, consumed by this whole new capability we were all you know developing. Yeah, it was amazing. And I know you said your fallback is probably to run a kennel somewhere, but have you thought about going back to government, either on the enforcement side or even into policy or anything in the public space uh, and doing public service? Because I know you have strong beliefs in right and wrong. Has that crossed your mind at all? It does. It actually crosses my mind all the time. And, you know, I've I've looked at a various, uh, you know, uh, positions. I have uh, a very strong you know, kind of guidance in my life around uh, operations and direct action operations, if, you know, possible supporting, you know, things that are, are happening that day. So it's not a no for me. It's got to be right and right for my family. I've dragged them around between government and, you know, and uh, several companies for a bunch of years. So I think if the right thing came along and my country needed me, I'd, I'd be happy to do it. So you're not, you're not announcing running for president or anything yet at this point, right? Uh, I'm just teasing. Yeah. Not this week. No. I think Oprah's got that nailed this month. I think she does, yeah. Are you able to keep your hand in the policy ring at all? Uh, now seems to be a formative time with um, maybe over-legislation in some cases and regulation, but uh, privacy is looming up, and we're seeing legislatures really struggle with um, what to do about cyber. I hated the term, but you know they're talking about it using that term. Are you able to, either as a private citizen or through ADP or through any other groups, are you able to still stay in touch with and influence policy and, and what's emerging on the new stage? Uh, you know, I have been. And, and whether it was working with the team that was drafting the CSF work or you know working with the NYDFS regs, what, my specialty I bring to the table, I think, Sam, is bringing the realistic realism of an operational executive and what that really means. Mm-hmm. And not to be the quote-unquote complaint department spokesperson of the companies who have to do it, but rather say, when you make that decision, this is what you have to prepare for. And I'll give you a, you know, a, like a, a normal thing. When you know, policymakers say, you must report. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, at what level, at what granular, and how are you going to consume that? Because the minute that it goes effective, you now are going to be on the receiving side of what? An output from somebody's SEM that's coming at you a million point four times a day? 
How are you going to consume that? You know, so making people understand what they're really saying in the context of an operational entity is where I spend most of my time on the policy side, really just educating people. Yeah, it's, it's keeping it real in essence, right? Too much of a too much of either an academic or a political exercise without that feedback loop. So that that's essential. You mentioned your family earlier. Anybody else in your family or in the security industry? Or show? I think you have two daughters, right? Do either of them show a desire to go into computer science or canine work or security slash operations protection, anything like that? Neither one of them. They're killing me. Good. You know? <laughs> Good. My, my, dad, my dad said to me, by the way, when I went to security, because he's a longtime CS and security guy, right? He said, I'd hope for better things for my son. So uh, so that is a good sign, right? So neither of them is interested. <laughs> you're, you're doing off dad's thing. Do you have anything that inspires you in your personal life, besides family, which you mentioned, but any music or any type of reading or any uh, interaction, any hobbies that you find either inspire you or help keep you young as you do this risk thing? Well, I don't know about inspiring, but... I still love technology. I'll tell you that much. I mean, uh, you know, in this job, you work and, you know, I have security operations in 13 countries. So I'm, I go around the globe two or three times a year. So, you know, you don't get a lot of downtime. But a couple of years ago, my wife said, hey, honey, you need a hobby. And, <laughs> and she went and she got me a drone. Oh, nice. And like worst thing she could have done because then I started playing with it. And so now like I've got like drones uh, and uh, you know, plural and I'm, I'm taking video and I'm stitching it together and I now have editing software. So I, I've kind of like gotten into that. Oh, so you've combined video and drones. That verges on the creepy a little bit. <laughs> In a respectable way, Sam. I know. But all legal and above board. Purely as an outlet though, right? It's uh, you, You're not hacking them, are you? Or are you? Uh, I'm oh, no, no, no. I was just concerned about drone air forces, right? Uh, no, no, no. That's next month. No, this month is purely just uh, enjoying flying them and uh, and using the video and, and creating some really cool things. And, and you know, now I'm getting into a multiplex video across multi-devices. I think I'm going to pick up some um, vlogging and a few other things just to, you know, I find it cool. I think, you know, you can do these things yourself. You can become your own broadcaster. And that's some of the stuff I like doing. I love catching up on new technology. Mm -hmm. I like reading kind of next generation, you know, fiction that allows me to think about what the world will be like in the future, lets me kind of get out of my zone, relax sort of a little the, bit reading near, stuff. Near field sci-fi kind of things, the what if a few things change short term kind of stuff? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, could the world really be like that? Could that, you know, truly happen? And how do we think about that? And how would it be represented today? I mean, those are things that, you know, I, I like reading and and diving into. And uh, I have, uh, I guess, two final questions as we approach the end of, uh, of this podcast. One is if, if you were giving advice to a young aspiring CISO, one who says, geez, I want to make it past that two or two and a half year mark. And they're in the same position you were in when you went from EMC to ADP. What would you say to somebody in that position today, as opposed to what it was like nine years ago? You know the lay of the land now. What advice would you give them given that you had such good advice three years in, how could you shortcut that? Would it be the same as you got or something different? You know, I, I tend to talk to practitioners just a little bit differently. And in my standing go-to explanation of how you can last a long time is finding mission. You know, I, I come from government and law enforcement in the military. Most of the people that do this job are in it for the good fight. You know, but some people get lost because they 
don't necessarily find their mission and what really truly drives them. For me, I like stopping bad guys. Yeah. I like protecting 83 million you know, consumers on my platform. I enjoy sending the FBI or Interpol after really bad people, right? That's what I love doing. And this job affords me that. And the program that I've developed that helps protect the business, that helps them drive their brand, enables me to get that satisfaction and mission. Find your mission, right? Look at the jobs that you're looking for. Make a list of companies you would want to go for and go after those. And maybe it's not a one-up position. It's a one-over until you go up. But, you know, don't just think about the dollars. Think about the mission and the impact that you will have. Maybe you're into leadership. Maybe you're solely into driving, you know, technical teams. You know, write it down, figure it out, and go after a job based on that. There's too many jobs out there right now. You've got your choice. Take that opportunity. Yeah, and that is exactly why I went where I went, by the way. I was tired of hearing breaches are inevitable and hands in the air if you know you've been breached or if you just don't know yet. And, you know, the bad guys are going to win 100% of the time. I mean, I made my last decision purely on the basis of saying enough is enough. So that resonates with me hugely. But I do have one last question, and it seems almost... It seems like what we just, your answer was awesome. And it feels like that should be the final note, but I have to ask, we may at a, a future either event or we may put one together, we may do a, uh, a poker game with the whole idea of risk among CISOs and have us play together. And a uh, simple question, uh, would you be up for joining us if we did that? Would you, uh, would you join in for a poker stars of security kind of thing? I tell you what, I'm a little risk adverse <laughs> and I don't gamble, okay. but I'll work security at it. There we go. I will take that. I will take that. You're more than welcome to join us. And uh, I love that. So Roland, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, I really look forward to seeing you next time and to talking to you again. Well, Sam, thanks for having me on. And it's, uh, as always, it's great talking to you. All right. Thanks, Roland.